Clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm, good afternoon, welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event is the 27th in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming and Executive Chairman of Guggenheim Partners, Alan Schwartz. If you're unable to stay with us for the duration of today's event, a replay will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, it's my pleasure to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom, and good afternoon to Rockefeller clients, to our colleagues at Rockefeller, and to other friends of Rockefeller. And as Tom said, welcome to our 27th in this client series that we began in March of 2020. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Alan Schwartz, the Executive Chairman of Guggenheim Partners, as our guest. Alan is the former Chief Executive Officer of Bear Stearns, where he had a long successful career serving before that as President and Chief Operating Officer executive vice president, head of investment banking and other positions of leadership, uh, including as one of the leading investment bankers of our generation. Alan earned his uh, Bachelor of Arts uh, in Management Science from Duke in 1972 and has been giving back and helping Duke in many ways since that time. He was on the Duke Board of Trustees from 2005 until 2017. He's been chairman of the Fuqua School of Business uh, Board of Visitors, a member of the Athletic Advisory Board, uh, one of the leading uh, proponents and supporters of uh, Duke University. Allen's also gives back in other ways. He's a member of the boards of the Robin Hood Foundation, NYU Langone Medical Center, the Clinton Health Access Initiative, Madison Square Garden, the National Medal of Honor Museum, uh, the list goes on. Uh, he's been a good friend of mine for a long time. He's had uh, a tremendous impact in the financial services business over uh, many decades uh, and has uh, uh, brought Guggenheim Partners uh, into uh, uh, a tremendous uh, arc of success in the decade plus since he joined Guggenheim after his time at Bear Stearns. So Alan, uh, great to have you with us today. Uh, welcome. Nice to be with you, Greg. Uh, Alan and I uh, can cover a broad range of topics that could go way past an hour. We talked about uh, a number that we would uh, run through uh, today. Uh, as uh, Joe said, uh, as uh, Tom said, you can uh, send questions in through uh, Microsoft Teams and we'll work those in as well. But Alan, I'd like to start, given uh, what you've done uh, with your career, uh, if you would talk a little bit about that, some of the highlights along the way, You've been at the center of, uh, of, of quite a bit, including uh, in the Bear Stearns days, uh, the, the great success of Bear over decades, and then uh, the, the, the more challenging time during the credit crisis, what you've done at Guggenheim in the last 10 plus years, advisor on some of the biggest uh, and most impactful uh, M&A transactions uh, in history. A little bit about uh, your career for, uh, for our listeners. Yeah, real quickly, I mean, I'm a little shocked as I just thought about it in my head. I say, I know I look like a young associate on this call, but I've actually, believe it or not, I can't believe it. I am now in my 50th year uh, in the financial services business, uh, starting as Ken Langone put in his book, uh, starting at uh, working for Ken, uh, working for minimum wage as an institutional equity salesman. Uh, 32 years at Bear Stearns, it was an incredible ride. It was an incredible firm. Uh, it had a great culture. Um, you know, I, I believe I set a record. Uh, I believe I lost more shareholder value per day of any CEO in history, <laughs> um, having stepped in at a bad time. Uh, that was sad. Uh, but Bear, Bear had been, it was just a great success and we thought we had an incredible team. Uh, look, I wrote it, I will go back, when I became a partner, I think we had $17 million of total capital, right? And wrote it up to, you know, the billions that we had. Um, but the most important thing is we believed in our team. And I will tell you that what makes me most proud, some of them are on the phone today. If you look at the levels that the Bear Stearns alums have, have reached uh, since what happened to Bear, 
It just makes me know how successful so many have been that we did, in fact, have a great team that I'm still proud of. And, uh, you know, Guggenheim has been just a great opportunity to build something again. You know, sad about Bear Stearns. I thought that's where I'd be for the rest of my life. Bottom line is building Guggenheim, a lot of it on the same culture that I you know, really believed in at Bear Stearns. Uh, at Guggenheim, we've built uh, a really strong multi-product uh, securities firm that I'm very, very proud of. And most proud that I think we've built a platform that I believe the generations behind me will be able to build uh, long after I'm gone. Well, uh, I, I would second uh, the, the quality of, of Bear and the people there. And actually, you, you know, as you said, Alan, the, the Bear Stearns, uh, the people in so many different places, when I meet somebody that, that uh, is from Bear Stearns or that talks about Bear Stearns, I always think to myself or I say uh, to the person uh, that uh, that was a great culture. They focused on making it happen, on getting it done for clients. Uh, it was an intense place in all the right ways. So uh, I'm glad to see that uh, you know, you've had the opportunity to bring a lot of that positive uh, to Guggenheim. And it's clear in, in, uh, in looking at the success of Guggenheim that you've done it again. Um, so you know we have uh, we have lots of things we can talk about, but uh, uh, unlike most people, uh, you've been looking at a broad range of of topics and researching and been interested in them over the course of your career. So one of the issues that's front and center in our society today is the impact of globalization and other things on income inequality. And uh, this is something income inequality that you've been looking at and talking about in our uh, society for some time. And in fact, you predicted at one point in time that there would be a populist backlash in, in Western societies like ours uh, following the fall of the communist states uh, for uh, a, a series of reasons that I think it's worth us kicking off with here. Can you talk a little bit about uh, why you said that uh, uh, you know the fall of communism and what followed from that uh, could ultimately lead to the kind of populism we're seeing in the United States and in many Western societies today? Yeah, it's a subject I've been very involved in for the last 15 years or more and uh, actually recently wrote a piece on it. I fell off the wagon from my pledge as a recovering research director not to put my BS down in writing. So, um, But I wrote about it because I spent a long time talking about it. The backdrop of it, trying to do a complicated subject quickly, um, when we went through the 60s and the 70s, we had peacetime inflation for the first time in all of U.S. financial history, and that really shook people up. And it caused in the Western world a big change in a lot of things. We saw a deregulation. We saw a pushback on union power. Uh, we had a lot of change. We went off the gold standard, created floating rate currencies. Uh, opened up free trade amongst the developed world, uh, cut taxes, et cetera. And basically it all worked in balancing the high inflation, high interest rate stagflation of the 70s and created a period of disinflation and growth that was working. Um, but that was the backdrop that when communism collapsed, all of a sudden it brought in countries with billions of new workers into a global system that had been very opened up. And it created what was pretty obviously going to happen in my view of the world. It was pretty, on the one hand, it actually reduced, it brought more people on a global basis out of poverty than any time in our, in global history. So if you were running the world, you'd say this is a pretty good deal. But at the same time, in the developed world economies, it brought about a wave running through the middle of these countries where outsourcing of manufacturing and those kinds of jobs went over to those low wage countries and it put a wave down the middle where those who could participate in the higher end of growth and opportunity like financial industry and technology and others boomed while those that were losing their jobs in the middle were pushed down into low wage service sectors and they were being you know pushed down so it created the beginnings of inequality that were very, very marked. And you could look at it a lot of ways, but the bottom line is wage and salary share of uh, you know a national income went down from over 50% to like 40%, while dividend income went up and doubled. All sorts of things like that. That's before you got into how that wage and salary income 
was shared. So that, you know, rough numbers, every dollar of corporate profits that had for years generated about $5 plus of wages was now generating four or less. And bottom line is those that were pushed down on the bottom, what history says is they're not going to sit still and think that's a good deal. So the point, I, the, the paper I wrote was about how populism was likely to grow up the way it did 100 years ago. The last time we had a globalization wave, where we had the beginning of the Socialist Party and a number of other things that occurred. So what we're seeing, um, you know, is, is the lessons of history, which is a book I really love, said, bottom line, when the masses think the elites have too much, one of two things has occurred throughout history, legislation to redistribute the wealth or revolution to distribute poverty. And so it was obvious that was coming, that the, the pressure on the masses was going to be a lot and there were things to do to get out in front of it. But um, a lot of capitalists just felt like, let's just keep things the way they were. Uh, everything's fair. And uh, I think we're, we have seen some of the rises of populism. You see it in a lot of things in rural America and in rural parts of Germany and France and everywhere else. Um, and it's something that I hope we're going to start to deal with um, or we're going to pay a price. And Alan, actually, when you look at it now, though, uh, uh, and, and you've seen it in other places, uh, obviously the UK, uh, but really all of the developed Western uh, societies, uh, when you look at it, uh, the impact of the pandemic might exacerbate these trends even more. I mean, maybe we should talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, the ability to to continue to drive forward on on, on much of business in in a more, you know, using the, the the benefits of technology that's higher in in certain industries than in other industries. And because of that, if anything, uh, we we might be dealing with um, a broadening of the inequality. Have have you been have you spent time looking at that and how does the pandemic fit into this? Spent a lot of times looking at that. It's it's um, it's hard to know. We were beginning to make a little bit of progress before the pandemic, um, but this was the most tale of two cities economy I've ever. The best of times and the worst of times. Those that were able to keep their jobs working remotely or working from home uh, kept their salary and benefits, and they weren't spending on going to work or doing a lot of things around going to work. So we saw a significant rise in the savings rate of those that kept their jobs. At the same time, the, the jobs that got hurt the most were in the service sector, and the service sector tend to be the lower wage jobs. Now, it's hard to know what the, excuse me, impacts of that are going to be because of the fiscal response that we saw, right? So instead of what happened bringing about a tremendous uh, downturn in that part of the economy. Uh, a lot of it was stabilized and supported, although I will tell you from my work at Robin Hood and things like that, the amount of starvation and, and uh, deprivation out in the streets was still really heartbreaking and rather significant. So um, yes, I think that there is an exacerbation of the trends that were in place uh, that COVID is making, that the pandemic has made worse. Uh, there were also a bunch of policy responses that are being considered, and we're going to have to wait to see how much of that happens and what kinds of impact it might have. Well, one of those areas, and this isn't directly related to uh, income inequality, but some of the investment, uh, you know, might, depending upon how it gets rolled out by government, might alleviate uh, some of this. But uh, let's let's move to the the infrastructure space, uh, where uh, significant sums are clearly going to be spent, are being spent, and are going to be spent in the U.S. Uh, in the sustainable uh, energy uh, part of our economy. Uh, and this is something that that's of interest to to Guggenheim and to Rockefeller, uh, with family offices investing in the space. It's an area that you've been very focused on. Uh, we are as well particularly within our asset management business where we've been managing uh, ESG uh, portfolios for a quite a long time. And in fact, thanks to the Rockefeller family who coined the phrase impact investing at the Rockefeller Foundation way back in 2007. So it's an area that uh, we're very focused on at Rockefeller. You are at Guggenheim. 
in addition to Guggenheim, you've been working uh, with uh, His Royal Highness Pr Prince Charles on, on his support and his efforts in the impact space. Can you talk about all of this, uh, you know, the, the things that you're working on, the investments that are getting made here? The Europeans, from an investment standpoint, are ahead of the curve. There's a tremendous percentage of discretionary investment dollars, particularly at the institutional level in Europe, that go into ESG investments. This is a space that uh, looks like uh, it's going to uh, attract dramatic investments and change going forward. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that has uh, taken a very large percentage of my time over the last few years. And um, I will tell you, it's interesting. If we start with where we began on populism and inequality, um, when I, long story short is how I got together, but I was asked to go see His Royal Highness um, and talk about it because he's been a, a really strong advocate of a lot of the, the policies that are necessary and he's really been tireless in it. And when I went to see him, my presentation uh, on the thing we were talking about, uh, I started with two things. Point number one that I said on income inequality, I said, you know, if you think about, again, go back 100 years and think about what was happening at the turn of the last century when all you know, rich business people were robber barons and there was, you know, an uprising uh, amongst people. I said, you know, it's hard to know, although I think there were a lot of good policies in the Roosevelt administration, it's hard to know whether we would have turned the corner on the depression and the populism that came out of that, were it not for World War II. And World War II created a common enemy that needed to be dealt with to stop the divides in the country and also triggered a wave of new investment in technology and deployment of technologies that after World War II, building out the infrastructure around the new technologies created a burst of productivity, new jobs, really took us out of you know, the, the feeling that a lot of people had that without the war, we go back to depression. And I said, right now, although it's not a pure uh, analogy, but the only, the one thing I started to see on the horizon that I thought could have a similar impact was climate. That climate is a common enemy. There's nobody who can get away from environment and climate is something that we all have to deal with on a global scale as a common enemy. And then most importantly, part of what really got me going was the other part of this, which was, I saw a number of technologies that were reaching scalability. They were no longer in the lab. They were really in the place where we could get them out into the field and really start to deploy them. And that if we took those technologies and the infrastructure that's needed to deploy them, it could be a lot like what happened with the post-World War II new technologies. It could create a lot of jobs, a lot of um, productivity, uh, better wages, and things that in fighting you know, climate and, and environmental problems, we could trigger another wave of more, let's call it inclusive capitalism, which is what I love to see. So it seems odd those come together, but that's what I was doing. I'll say quickly that we could go deeper into it. What I told His Royal Highness at the time, which is a few years back, the group, however, the capital that needed to be deployed to get these things to scale. There was a lot of venture capital to look at new technology. There was a lot of institutional capital to you know, go repeat the number of units once it's proven. But the toughest capital was to raise the money to build the initial plants and facilities to prove out this technology at scale. And I felt like we created a call out to wealthy families uh, said, I think wealthy families, we called it profit with a purpose, would be the most likely to say, we don't have particular parameters we have to invest around. And the fact that there were what we thought were very high return investment opportunities that also would have benefit for society, that wealthy families would be the ones to support it. And quite frankly, one of the examples I used uh, with His Royal Highness was Rockefeller. Um, both through your family offices, through Raj Shaw, who's our mutual friend and what he was doing in places like India. And I use that as an example that if we got the call out there, we could get a lot of capital to earn high returns and do benefits for society. Yeah. 
And and Alan, as as uh, we look at the Biden administration and the proposal that they put on the table, uh, which was even broader than uh, than climate change and 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 you know so-called clean energy, uh, but there's clearly major impetus, and the Republicans are going to. Uh, meet the administration somewhere on on the on the spectrum here, uh, and there's going to be uh, you know uh, probably north of a trillion dollars invested. Uh, that's one role of the government to really uh, help accelerate the investment in the space and in, in, in a society. But government has a broader role as well. And you and I were talking about this uh, leading up to it. It used to be that the government would also, when you had an externality like pollution, they'd step in and they'd make sure it was regulated in a way where it, it, uh, there was uh, there was control placed on it. Um, the the uh, the climate change issue has attracted a lot of corporations and and as you said, wealthy families, but a broader set of individuals. I would argue millennials and Generation Z. You know, I'm raising three of them. They all care. I think that generation cares a lot, and I don't think they're going to get older and care less. So there's a groundswell outside of government uh, that's really been driving this. What does government need to do besides investing, which is clearly going to happen somewhere along, you know, the the compromise here uh, between the Republicans and and the Biden administration? There's going to be significant dollars going into infrastructure that uh, focuses on clean energy. Besides that, what else does government need to do to make uh, uh, the the promise of uh, of of uh, an energy sector that is evolving to to the climate change that's occurring a reality. What else do they need to step in and do? Yeah, a very complicated subject, um, but one that we really need to get right. And uh, as I think you and I talked in the past, I, I actually uh, did a presentation for the Edison Electric Institute on this very subject um, because one of the things in talking about when externalities were covered by the government, like you know, pollution and smog, they just they just came up with a new set of rules and business had to follow. And then the output, you know, that's that's what happened. Also, one example I'll use because it's really relevant to today. When wind and solar started, the government offered, you know, uh, benefits to those that um, would produce them. Uh, so the government spent money in helping them get to the point of uh, through subsidies getting to bring the cost curve down. And that was very successful. The government subsidies allowed the learning curve of pricing to come down to what now where renewables are the cheapest form of energy out there without any subsidies. So that part worked. But the world's moving way faster than it moved back then. And government by by necessity is, is, uh, is behind the curve and certainly polarization makes it more. One quick thing on the infrastructure bill, I think we will get one, we need one. Everybody has said we need one, but infrastructure, we ought to, you know, it, it should be actual physical investment because the whole point of infrastructure is it's supposed to be CapEx, which is one type of spending that then earns a return long-term as opposed to perpetual spending. And the definition of infrastructure is being kicked about in a way that I think uh, we gotta be careful about. But what they should be doing is investing in some of the infrastructure, but also triggering the private sector to invest the money they want to invest in these new technologies. Now they can take over the role of government. What I was saying to the EEI, for example, Look, it was always frustrating when government controlled everything, you would get you know, concerned about the regulatory drag because government could be slow. But when you switch the baton now from government over to consumers, as you've mentioned, and investors, they may not be slow, but they can be incredibly volatile in their demands and not necessarily thought through all the implications. So you take the you know, electric grid and we said, you know, after investing billions in natural gas plants, now all of a sudden to replace coal, now people are demanding they get rid of natural gas. Well, you can't invest billions around something that people don't want after you build it. And secondly, if you look at the electric grid as one example, because I think it's a good one, um, there's now a clamor to have 100% of electric power come from renewables. Well. That's at the same time that electric demand is about to skyrocket. 
One, people want to go to electric vehicles. They all consume electricity. Two, the move to the cloud and computer everything are big users of electricity. So it is not possible to deploy enough renewables in a reasonable period of time to meet all of the demand for electricity. So the industry has to look at better storage, uh, advanced nuclear, hydrogen, all the things, and go back as an industry and say, here's a plan where we could put together that would work. But we need the government to sign off that all of this stuff is, in fact, sustainable. And then it will trigger a tremendous flow of capital. And things like, I'll give you one example, which I think is very big. Oh, and also, I was talking, we had a guy from the DOE on the other day, a senior guy. There's now this pressure on fossil fuel companies and say, don't invest in any fossil fuel companies. Um, you know, they should be moving to renewables. Well, we're going to be consuming a lot of fossil fuels for a long time, no matter what. And one example is airlines where, you know, they, they, there was an article the other day in the paper, they're going to be the hardest ones to get off of fossil fuels. Well, the companies in, in the oil sector are trying to decarbonize their fuel. So if they can say, for example, using direct air capture to take all of this CO2 out of the atmosphere for every barrel that gets uh, drilled, that would be a big game changer. And to do it, they need somebody to buy credits for the CO2 they take out. And I won't get into the details of this because it gets quite you know, uh, detailed, but if the government would just say, here's the things we will count as credits, billions of dollars of private sector money will now flow in, take over the role the government had, where the government provided the capital for wind and solar, they don't have to anymore. Microsoft, Amazon, FedEx, airlines, they will provide all the capital to get those technologies launched and bring the cost curves down. So that's what I'm hoping and working on to try and get government to certify the things that could work and then watch the private sector get behind it. Yeah, that's great. I, I want to continue on that. I want to remind people if you're on uh, uh, Microsoft Teams, if you have questions, you can send them in uh, via Microsoft Teams and, and we'll work them in. Alan, is it, when you look at that though, there are a couple of things that you said. One is the definition of infrastructure and, and uh, as the uh, certainly maybe becoming one of the most famous members of the Senate, uh, Joe Manchin, the swing vote, he's pulling it back to the tangible definition of infrastructure that you just laid out. But can we get out of government uh, a bill uh, with the dollars heading in the, into tangible infrastructure and with decisions made uh, on things like uh, carbon credits so that we can unleash the private sector money and investment uh, behind those those topics. Are we going to see that in the next you know three or four months? Um, I'm uh, guardedly optimistic. Uh, I think you know through a group no labels, which I know you know, and I'm on. You know, I think you know now Mitt Romney's stepping in, and and I think there are you know look infrastructure has been something that both parties have, have wanted i mean look th this notion of a 15% going to the g7 and getting a 15% minimum tax people don't realize how big a move that could be um, on some of the things that need to move so you know i can't say i'm quote optimistic but i'm hopeful and you know the thing about infrastructure the point is point number 1 they're putting in things like childcare and things and say that's infrastructure because it allows people to work and you know what? I'm not saying it's a bad program. In fact, I think it's a good program, but you can't throw it into a dump with infrastructure. You know, there's CapEx and there's OpEx. That's a continuing spend. That's not a one-time investment. So I think, and oh, by the way, this covers a lot of ground, but the, the times we've had increased productivity have always been on the back of an infrastructure build. Infrastructure drives investment, which drives productivity. So I'm hopeful that we're gonna get that. On things like, you know, defining what carbon credits are, et cetera, I do believe that there's some, you know, there's some momentum behind it. You know, California has been the leader in that, right? The, the low carbon fuel standard. And so, and, and some other things. And I think the government, I think the main things they'll do, for example, are the ones like I used aviation because 
giving something for credit and, and saying that, you know, uh, airlines have to do it is something that's national and global. It's not, it doesn't hit any one state hard like gasoline does, which gets to be where you get all tied up. And by the way, one other thing I wanted to say on, which, which again, Rockefeller has been a leader in, the thing about climate is it's global. So if you think about some of the pressures we have now of, you know, we have, you know, uh, peaking, you know, labor forces, but we don't want a lot of immigration and you have poor countries where people want to leave and come here. Um, there's a real battle there in that populist wave. The thing about climate is anywhere you can reduce CO2, as an example, anywhere in the world, it has the same effect on the, re on the world. It's one global punch bowl. So there's a lot of these technologies that could be deployed in these countries and then have the products come back and benefit other countries. So, and I, I bring that up because again, Rockefeller is a leader in that, um, in doing some of that around the world. So yes, I'm somewhat optimistic that we're gonna make progress on this. Great, um, let's, uh, let's extend it a little bit farther and, and talk about cities, including the one near and dear to your heart and mine, New York. Uh, what is going to be the impact of a lot of the themes we've talked about uh, on on cities, both the the impact of the pandemic, but the impact of uh, the, all of the investments in sustainable energy? What will a place like New York look like in five, ten, and twenty years, and and other cities, uh, you know, across the United States? Yeah, it's a really it's a really open question. I think because we, you know. There was a lot of technologies that were being uh, developed uh, that were like normal adoption curves. You know, normally when a new technology comes out, you know, it takes people a long time to learn about it, you know, understand it and use it. And then the pandemic came along at a time where some of these technologies were in their early stage of adoption, like Zoom meetings, as an example, we're on here. And all of a sudden, everybody adopted it at once. So the adoption curve soared. And we don't know what that's gonna do to productivity and the way businesses work and everything else. Are they gonna disperse or are they gonna find that culturally dispersing your workforces and doing everything virtual may have productivity benefits, but it has some cultural backlash. I think it's gonna come out to be, you know, some of both. So the cities which have based, and let's talk about New York, really. New York's main drivers of what's kept New York going have been global tourism, which has been a big, big deal in New York, which got, you know, uh, shut down. I, assuming the pandemic, you know, gets under control on a global basis, I think tourism will come back in a strong way and that will help New York. The other point has been becoming one of the leaders, like a lot of cities, and being the place where high-end workers could come and aggregate to work for, you know, new technology type of companies. You know, it's not clear whether they're going to start to say, no, our workforces can disperse, or whether we're still going to want a, a lot of them, you know, here in the city. Again, I believe it's going to be part of both. I don't think it'll be the way it was. Um, but I don't think it's going away and going to be dispersed and, and New York will adapt. On the climate stuff, I think one of the benefits of the climate stuff actually is, while we love New York and we want it to come back, it's the rural areas of this country that have been the most destroyed. And you look out there and in fact, and, and you look at the partisanship that we have in this country, it's bottom line, every major urban area is a solid blue. Every rural area is a solid red, and the swing in every election has been the suburbs, right? But the rural areas are where you see the people feeling the most left behind. And again, one of the good news about a new infrastructure and new ESG type of investing is that a lot of the facilities that could be beneficial for climate can be redeployed in those rural areas. And then some of the use cases for them can be deployed in the city areas. So I think, I think that sustainability initiative can be a benefit to cities, but a bigger benefit to rural, which we desperately need. Uh, absolutely. I mean, desperately, that would be a terrific byproduct of the move to, uh, uh, you know, a broader set of energy uh, sources. Uh, if we can get 
capital and jobs channeled to rural. You know, because one of the things that we're seeing now, even in the real estate space, is the the uh, the return of uh, suburban office space, and because people instead of necessarily working in New York, they might be in the suburbs around New York. But that doesn't address rural, which you know is a is a big challenge, and does cycle right back to the topic that we spent so much time on earlier: income inequality. So. Uh, if if the move toward a broader set of energy sources uh, can can create uh, investment in in uh, in rural, that would be uh, terrific, as you say, Alan, and a, and a great byproduct of that. And if you look at a lot of those technologies, they need wide open spaces. That's one of the yeah. you know. I mean, you look at solar and wind and thing. You know, you know, people don't want it in their backyard, right? But when you have wide open spaces, now you look at other things like carbon capture, like, uh, you know, energy storage and being able to big build facilities around that bring jobs uh, to those facilities, I think is one of the one of the great potentials of, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure spend and and unlocking uh, corporate spend around those new technologies. Alan, when we get it, we stay with this for a second. When we get, uh, when you have the negotiation now with between the administration and and the Republicans, with you know Joe Manchin and Susan Collins and others sitting in the middle, is that is this topic something that they that they're focused on? Because that would draw Republican support. Because obviously, fair amount of the representation of those rural areas is Republican uh, repre- representation. This could pull Republican support behind a compromise infrastructure bill with uh, investments being channeled into rural areas, as you said, that that makes sense from a physical proximity vantage point in any event. Yeah, the, the, the problem in any of these things, we've had this for a while. We've had lots of reasons why certain policies would be really beneficial to both Republican and Democratic, you know, uh, bases. The problem is it's, well, okay, I'll agree on that part, but there's no compromise, right? There's no saying, okay, let's look at the infrastructure and let's keep this as infrastructure that we can we can deploy. And, you know, and even things like they're talking about, you know, you know Wi-Fi and 5G and getting those out to the areas that don't have them, et cetera, is another rural benefit. But Yes, it's talked about, but then it's a matter of, but wait a minute, we're not going to agree to a bill where you're throwing in these five other things and this way to pay for them, and you guys don't want us to separate these parts out that we agree with. That's the challenge right now that's going on. There's a lot of debate, or let's put it this way, they're summarizing the debate about the amount of dollars, but it's much more about what kinds of dollars get spent on what. I think there is a real agreement on spending dollars on what is historically been called infrastructure. There may be a little debate as to how much of it is roads and bridges versus, you know, environment or climate, but that's that's easy to handle. Um, the real debate is, can we just stop there or do we have to put on these five other things and how do we pay for them and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, uh, a question that came in from Tom Giordano, which uh, is, is right on topic here. Uh, Tom says, you mentioned the need for government to take the lead on topics such as renewable energy. How do you get around the short, the, uh, the, the view of some who perceive this as big government just getting bigger? Well, it's a good question. I'm not saying they take the lead on, on demanding things. I'm saying that they, that they take the lead on on defining, you know, things that work. In other words, just like we have, um, if you want to, if you want to say food is organic, you have to be able to let consumers know that it really is. And one of the one of the problems we have right now is, you know, what really is a carbon credit? What qualifies? What doesn't? And what I'm saying is, instead of the government doing what they used to do, which is say, okay, we will invest in what we think is the is the next future. If they just say, okay. This direct air capture and fuels down it, yes, that counts as a carbon credit. Yes, this counts over here. And this is how it's measured. And then let the private sector determine which technologies will produce the most credits going forward. And also which of those technologies with those credits can build new business cases. So for example, direct air capture, 
Some of direct air capture is being done just to take it out of the air and sequester it, in which case it would all be based on credits to offset, you know, what is being set. But other use cases to then use that CO2 as a raw material in the production of, you know, Coca-Cola is one example, or carbon fiber steel or tire and rubber. If you get to the point where the, you know, those costs come down, you end up with actually getting products cheaper that also have climate benefits. So it's not the government taking over and deploying the capital. It's actually the government just saying, okay, we agree that this is a credit and you Microsoft or you FedEx get, you know, get a check mark that you actually paid for a credit that actually works. You know, Alan, you should be careful because the coherence of that argument in view is so high that uh, maybe we'll have a, a, a final career for you here at the end uh, in government because you're going to get a lot of votes on this call for that uh, that very pragmatic, logical view of government taking the lead but not overspending and just letting, you know, setting up the rules of the road so that the private sector can come in and drive yeah, the and By the way, one other thing on it, when I say when you when you when you get the madness of crowds on the other side, let's look at GameStop or something. When you look at that. You know, the consumers that then swing in and demand that we, you know, stop doing this and do only that, they're not they're not going to take responsibility. That's why we talk about the electric grid. The utility companies have to think about how to decarbonize at the same time that they have to be able to provide power when it's needed. Right. And so if you saw what happened in Texas. If all of a sudden, and the Texas was more complicated than this, but if all of a sudden you said, you know what, we shut down all of this and we went to all renewables and uh-oh, we didn't have enough to provide the demand when it came, then people are going to sit back and say, well, that's your fault. We didn't tell you not to have enough capacity. That's where that's where the, the slowness of government, as I said earlier, now you run the risk on the other side of not having thought all the way through all the issues of what's being demanded by consumers. Let's shift. There's another topic that you've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about and writing about, uh, and that's the, the demographic challenges. You, you could argue demographic time bomb embedded in our society, uh, the shift in the number of young workers supporting uh, more and more older retirees for great reason. I mean, my parents are 87 and 81 and lifespans are longer. Uh, what, what as a society do we need to do in your eyes to respond to what's a secular change? The, and and uh, I'll let you lay the numbers out. When you uh, uh, mentioned them to me, I was surprised that even though I'm aware of the topic, I was surprised that the, the, the quantitative, the impact of the quantitative change over a generation here in terms of the number of young workers supporting retirees. Yeah, you know, there was a great, I can't remember who said one time, I said demographics are the future that's already happened. And yet what I find with demographics is since they're so obviously coming, they get talked about for so long that it feels like, oh, well, we've already dealt with it because I've been hearing about it for 20 years. And yet because it was predicting what's going to happen 30 years out, it didn't actually happen yet. So, you know, and the bottom line, a lot of this has to do with uh, a generation that I uh, have to say I'm also a part of. Um, the baby boomers, I said to my friend Tom Brokaw one time that the, you know, you should write a sequel to The Greatest Generation, which is about World War II vets, to say, how did the greatest generation raise the most self-absorbed generation in history, the baby boomers? Because the baby boomers have voted around their own interests ever since they came into the voting pool, and they were such a big bulge that they've had tremendous power. So, but, the, but it's take a step back. As the baby boomers were coming in, and they were coming in right during that change that I talked about, you know, the Reagan-Thatcher revolution along with other things, the baby boomers were about to be the largest increase in working age population in history. And so we had a massive new wave of working age population who are borrowers and consumers of capital against a backdrop of small savings because that generation before had lived through World War II and the Depression. And so changing a lot of things that would bring more capital to work, et cetera, it, it worked. And there was there was a lot of great things. And I will say I took proud in being part of that when my uh, economist Larry Kudlow went into the Reagan administration. But you come out the other side. And oh, by the way, the baby boomers in the 80s said, let's go modify Social Security. 
because <laughs> even though there's a lot of us and a few of them, as we look out, we got to alter the curve because it's going to cost too much. So we changed some things in Social Security. Now, as we moved along, as the baby boomers got to their 50s, they say can't touch Social Security. Even as now the numbers are saying it's going to, nope, nope, can't be touched, third rail of politics. So now we come to the other side. We have a massive wave of retirees coming with a declining percentage of working age population. So, you know, bottom line was most of, you know, post, uh, you know, World War II, once we started in the 70s, 80s, there were round numbers, five plus um, working age people for every retired age person. We're now down to like three and a half and we're on our way to two and three quarters. So That's a almost system- half. Almost cut in half. But that Almost was the cut thing in half. Almost five yeah. to two and three quarters. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and 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 just think about that for a second. I mean, and against a backdrop of enormous savings, right? And so you sit there and you say, just just start with that. If you were saying I had, you know, five new people for every old one, and say now I've got two and three quarters, would I think about changing my system somewhat? You think you might. It wouldn't exactly use all the same things, and at the same time. The, the, the programs that were created, and as you say, as people live longer and longer, uh, and a lot of other things, the expense of those programs keeps growing. Now you're going to have two and three quarters people per every retiree paying for their benefits, right? And so before COVID, real quickly on this, 76 cents on every dollar spent in the budget before COVID was going to go to entitlements and interest on the debt. And two thirds of that is Medicare, Social Security. So the way the budget was forecast, we were gonna have 50 cents on every dollar the government spent to provide benefits for 20% of the population and the interest on the debt they ran up. And people are surprised if you start to get a socialist wave out of younger people who say, I don't know if the other 80% of the population should have to split up the other 50 cents while you guys spend 50 cents on 20. So this is just a time bomb um, of the old versus the young because it is just beginning to kick in. It has been something that's been talked about, but it's just beginning to kick in. One last thing on that is part of the reason we've been able to ignore it is because as we paid down all the high coupon debt that we had accumulated in that inflation period, we have had flat interest expense for like 17, 18 years while we tripled or quadrupled our debt. Wow. So tripling or quadrupling the debt doesn't have to get much attention when interest expense is flat because as long as my current expense is on it, I'll just push it down the road. But after you've paid off all that high coupon debt, that isn't gonna keep happening. Well, let's take that. That, there's, that leads us to another topic that I wanna get your views on because uh, uh, you know, it's one that's increasingly in the news now uh, on the inflation side. But before we get to inflation, we, we've got the fiscal realities that you just talked about. Uh, one of the things that has been uh, a part of the pillars that uh, underlie the strength of the American economy and our global leadership as the as the world's leading economy. And there's another option uh, that's in terms of size and and and, and growth rate certainly in China today. What will be the impact of this, not just on inflation, uh, but on our status as the reserve currency? Can can we make that math work going forward here, or are we putting it under threat unless we deal with some of the things you're talking about, including the the demographic time bomb, uh, you know, among other things? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, but the exorbitant privilege of reserve currency is something we've had for a long time. Um, you know, it's really it's really hard to know because there there has not even been close to emerging an alternative, right? I mean, if you look at the rest of the developed world, their demographics are the same as ours. Uh, fiscally, they're actually more conservative, which is shocking. Um, but you have China coming along, but they're not ready yet to be a stabilizer for the rest of the globe at, at their stage of development. So we have this benefit of there being no real alternative. But if we keep going down the path we are, if you think the reserve currency has to be something that people think is a stable, you know, functioning, you know, uh, government support, um, you know, whether or not a new system is going to come out that doesn't have a quote, a reserve currency, but, you know, finds 
you know, this is part of what's been driving crypto is people feeling that, you know, nobody's going to want to rely on the dollar as the as the uh, as the reserve currency. So it's it's a big, big issue. Um, as I said, the, the thing that drives it is the short termism of everything we do with budgets and, um, you know, modern monetary theory. We can just keep creating as much debt as we want. I think, you know, it, it just it, it doesn't make sense to me. There is a limit. Uh, and in the meantime, what it's created this quickly is, is asset inflation, right? The, the, the policies we've had since for a whole lot of reasons, you don't have velocity of money, but you have sort of very low interest rates coming out of all this and a lot of savings is bottom line is you go into, you know, asset inflation instead of goods inflation. Real quickly on goods inflation, I part of my globalization to me was, you know, a deflationary force. Right. And and for a lot of reasons, globalization is peaked. So while I've been in the camp that inflation would be lower longer than people thought for the last 20 years, as you know, Greg, we talked about years ago. Now, I think we've probably bottomed on inflation because globalization is peaked and people are thinking about not having these supply chains the way they've been, et cetera, et cetera. So but I don't think all of a sudden inflation comes roaring back. It, it just it feels like on a secular basis, just in the way that, gee, inflation came down cycle over cycle. I think we might start to see inflation start to tip up the other way. And if with that you get some rise in interest rates, then this budget thing could come roaring to the front. Yeah, uh, entirely agreed. I was going to uh, uh, ask you about China, uh, Alan, uh, but one of my colleagues, Grace Hewn, uh, sent a question in that uh, where China's embedded uh, that links back to uh, the climate change issue we were talking about. Grace says, you mentioned climate change is today's defining challenge that's mobilizing countries across the globe to collaborate to invest in innovative solutions. To what degree is the increasing geopolitical tension between democracies and more autocratic type nations leading to a potential new Cold War with China? Is this an opportunity that brings both sides of the aisle together to drive U.S. investments in technology, cyber, telecommunications? Where I was going, and Grace has got that embedded in there, can we work with China on climate change? Is it, and, and if we can, are we going to, uh, you know, make such substantial investments that that'll drive it forward on its own? Uh, can we repair, the larger question is, can we repair the tension in the relationship with China? Yeah, I mean, look, that, that, that's got a lot embedded. I think on climate change, will they play along? I think they will. Um, I think that we will get some things that everybody agrees to do. Their arguments will be, well, we're less developed than you are, so we could commit to less, but we'll still do things. But you see outliers like Russia saying, you know, we'll, we'll still do this. So I think that on things like climate change, we can get some collaboration. But underneath it all is, and, and this is not a new Cold War to me, just so we, just to, just to be clear, the Cold War was about a duopoly, right? Where there was one part of the world driven by the, you know, the Soviet Union, one part, and each one took care of its own backyard. We're much more multipolar now. Now it's much more about different factions fighting with each other. It's much more like a pre-World War I world. And there's a lot of potential spillovers of that when you see how the Middle East, how Israel, how Russia, how all these different parts of the world, uh, you know, look at each other um, instead of saying there's one power leading each part of the world. It's a very, very different and a very dangerous world because of that. And then there's the thing that everybody talks about, the Thucydian dilemma. China, clearly, they will work together on certain things along the way, but China clearly wants to be the dominant force in the world. They believe that's their role in life and they need to get rid of us. And the Thucydian dilemma is that over centuries, whenever a new power is come up to challenge the old power, it ends up in war, right? Yeah. And, and one exception to that was the US taking over for the UK, but there was a lot of you know linkage between the US and the UK before that. Now, war does not necessarily mean bombs and airplanes, right? War in today's world can be bioterrorism. It can be cybersecurity, as we're seeing as we sit here today. And so, you know, can we work together somewhat? Yes. One of the things I'm seeing, if you talk to Korea, you talk to them, they're desperately trying to do more investment here with the U.S. because they want to be linked to the U.S., 
um, as opposed to being dependent on China. So it's a very multipolar world. And one last thing I'll say about that is a bunch of investors. One thing that I wrestle with is the asset inflation that comes from very low interest rates saying you can't really price in risk. Let's remember one thing about risk management I, I find interesting. We had 10 recessions in the first 41 or 42 years after World War II. So I grew up in a world where when the, when the economy started to recover, you started to say, gee, we better start managing risk because you never know when the next downturn is. This recession we went through was the third recession in 30 years. Think about that. But two out of three of them were from non-financial events, 9-11 and COVID. So what we have is a world where not knowing whether recession's coming in three years, 10 years, 15 years, you don't see risk management adjusting or risk while at the same time geopolitical tensions and these extraneous events are more risky than ever. But it's hard to price them in because they're so asynchronous and, and, and hard to time the way you used to try and time the next downturn. So it's a really good question, but it's hard to be optimistic that over the next 20 years or so that the U.S. and China will decide to really be, uh, you know, synchronous in the way they do things. Um, I just think conflict is coming. Yeah, uh, I, unfortunately, I agree with you. Uh, one thing that one theme that you've had throughout here, which is fascinating, which uh, I don't know that there are a lot of others uh, that are drawing the linkages, uh, but they will. This notion of going back a century, pre-World War One, through that time, a multipolar world, income inequality, post-World War One, through the Great Depression, uh, may be solved by World War II as opposed to anything that governments and, and central banks did. Uh, and these things repeating themselves 100 years later, and we don't have time here for, is that something that happens uh, throughout history on a cyclical basis or uh, you know, are there other reasons not, why? Right, not on a predictable cyclical basis, but, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. That's why I spend so much of my time looking at what past cycles have told me, what, you know, because the conditions that exist have implications. It's like watching weather patterns. You know, when that, when, you know, comes into here, you know that it can create a storm. So you have to, you have to look at it. So when you see things like inequality, when you see things like rising powers, when you see multipolarity, not to study history makes no sense because you saw how those things played out and you could at least look for them. And, and let's remember one thing, the era, people tend to think the era they grew up in is the norm. Right. So here, the United States has been the dominant power. Free market capitalism has been, the, you know, the, the beacon for the world. You know, how many countries have been the dominant power and their way of doing things stayed as the way everybody else did it for centuries? Not many. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. I'm going to ask you one more question uh, and then uh, we'll close it out. Uh, as you said, you're coming up on your 50th year, which I didn't know, so congratulations in the Thank financial you. services industry. The biggest changes or a big change or something that comes to mind for Alan Schwartz between the world that you saw, and there's obviously a dramatic number of changes, but something from uh, what you saw uh, earlier in your career to today in, in the, the financial world that we live in, the investing world that we live in. Yeah, the, the world, one thing I always say is our industry has gone through more changes than almost any I know. And I said, but the principles that I learned from Ken Langone and Ace Greenberg have never changed about focusing on clients and their needs and, and coming up with solutions. I would say the major trend that has occurred over all of the cycles has been the, the aggregation of assets and the changing ways in which assets get intermediated. Right. Because when I started, you know, bottom line is there were hundreds of brokerage firms all just, you know, calling on clients to do a little bit of stock trading at a fixed at a fixed commission. Right. Um, and, you know, look at all the changes and the provider of liquidity to a system in the panic was the specialist. And the specialist had like 15 million dollars of capital. Right. And now, as you look at, at the massive waves of capital to get and how that capital interacts with each other, it constantly evolves. And that's the wave that I try to follow is what are the new ways assets will be 
traded and intermediated as bigger and bigger pockets of it get created. Well, Alan, thank you very much. This has been tremendous. The insights are not what you typically hear, uh, and they're of import for all of our listeners. So really appreciate you being here. As I uh, promised, I will end with a quote. Uh, but before that, thank uh, our clients of Rockefeller, uh, my colleagues and other friends of Rockefeller for joining us with uh, Alan Schwartz today. So I picked a quote because I knew that Alan would dive deep uh, on lots of topics here. Uh, and uh, so I have a quote from Bobby Kennedy, who was prone to do the same things in a very different uh, world. Uh, this is from 1966, uh, way back um, uh, in a famous speech he gave in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, Bobby Kennedy said the following, quote, this world demands the qualities of youth, not a time of life, but a state of mind, a temper of the will, a quality of the imagination, a predominance of courage over timidity, of the appetite for adventure over the life of ease. And I picked that in part because Alan's gone after it for now 50 years, which I didn't know coming into this uh, in every way, shape and form, uh, including diving deep on uh, topics that are of such relevance to all of us on this call and across American society. So Alan Schwartz, thank you again for joining us today. We'll see you soon. All the best.